You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. In the 2011 book, Idiot America, author Charles Pierce opens his story of the dumbification of American culture with the classic exemplar of wingnut ideas, Ignatius Donnelly, author of the 1882 book, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. While it was Plato who gave us the legend of Atlantis, it was Donnelly who turned out the template for all modern variants of the lost continent. It was a strange idea, and apparently as enticing as it was wrong. Pierce uses a very specific word to describe Donnelly and his ideas. He refers to both as crackpot. Crackpot is said to come from the word cracked, which means faulty, and pot being used as a slang for a person's head. But whether that's right or wrongheaded, the more obvious metaphorical reference is to that of a ceramic pot with a crack in it. On first glance, it looks like a sound vessel, but it simply won't hold water. A crackpot idea won't hold water either. But that doesn't matter because it turns out that even the most cracked crackpot idea can hold infinite quantities of belief. This is part one of a two-part series on the Shaver Mysteries. We're going to be talking about the hollow earth, ancient astronauts, Nazis, UFOs, comic books, science fiction, and much, much more. Get ready for a strange trip. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. You know, I read our reviews on iTunes, and I'm really happy that so many of you have enjoyed the show enough to take a moment to give us a very positive review. But I also take the criticisms to heart as well. One that we get occasionally, and that I'm going to try to address in this two-part episode, is that when we deep dive into topics that I and my guests know well, we sometimes forget to contextualize all the name-dropping during the interview. 
I try to augment the show notes with links that will fill in those gaps. But if you find that there's something we mention in this show that you don't recognize or we don't have a reference to, please shoot me an email and I'll add it to the show notes. You can always contact me at blake at monstertalk.org. So, case in point, the topic of these next two episodes is the shaver mystery. What is the shaver mystery? Well, it's a complicated story, which is why this is such a long coverage. But the nutshell version is that in the 1940s, a man named Richard Shaver wrote about mysterious experiences he had in which he was receiving information from telepathic evil robots inside the earth. That's right. Shaver believed that evil monsters lurked inside a hollow earth and could influence the lives of us mere mortal surface dwellers. Now, that may sound like science fiction, but I want to save the really fascinating twists and turns for our guests, which will come up during these discussions. As we've got two returning fan favorites, archaeologist and author of the book Spooky Archaeology, Dr. Jeb Card, and researcher Dr. Jerry Drake, who previously joined us to discuss grimoires and the amazing Jack Parsons. You can find fascinating episodes featuring their wit and wisdom in our archives at monstertalk.org. But before we dive into a story that deals so heavily with the topic of a hollow earth, I think it would be useful to do a really brief overview of the history of the theories around that topic. Now, we could start in a lot of places. For example, the writing of Athanasius Kircher, whose 1665 compendium Mundus Subterraneus, or The Subterranean World, had been inspired by his own trips inside Mount Vesuvius to see the roiling and boiling gas emitted from the hellscape of a volcano. He wrote about giants and dragons and other legendary dwellers of caves, and many things that make me desperately want to read this huge and prodigious work, even if the factual accuracy of his speculations are wildly wrong. The illustrations are amazing. To do a comprehensive history of the hollow earth for this show would be impossible. There's far too many legends involving giant caverns, lost civilizations, holes in the polar regions, suns in a sky of an inverted globe. It just goes on and on. And that's just the nonfiction. But let's skip quite a bit forward from ancient stories of holes that lead down into Hades and other sorts of myths and legends. And instead, we'll arbitrarily start our modern conceptions of the hollow earth with someone we usually think of as a scientist. Sir Edmund Halley of Comet fame. Now, it might seem odd for a person so firmly associated with the birth of science to postulate a hollow earth, but Halley was trying to account for a recently discovered anomaly. The earth appeared to have four magnetic poles, and they wandered around wildly. So how could this be? To explain it, he postulated that the multiple poles were from multiple spheres which were inside the earth that moved in ways that accounted for the wandering and also accounted for the earth having four when no magnets on the surface ever have but two. We now know that he had leapt to a complicated conclusion to explain a phenomenon that was actually based on incomplete data. The poles do move, but we only have two of them. As wild as his idea was, there are actually layers within the Earth, just not the strange sort of bullseye of concentric circles you would see if his model of the world were correct. Now, I'm not a geologist, but thanks to some very clever science experiments, we now know the Earth's solid crust moves around on a sea of molten rock, and deep within that rock is a denser metallic core. The spinning of all this material generates the magnetic field which in turn protects us from harmful cosmic radiation and gives us the marvelous polar lights. 
Thanks to seismic readings during earthquake activity and an understanding of density, distance, speed, and many other basic physics, researchers have used seismic data, almost like a sonogram, to infer much about the Earth. Among those discoveries, none of them confirmed a hollow Earth. But Halley was just a notable starting point with his paper in 1692. And these things don't just die once they've been published. They live on. They mutate. Even when the scientific world rejected or ignored much of Halley's writing about this, others republished it, including the Reverend Cotton Mather, who included it in a volume he composed on Christian philosophy. And others would come up with their own ideas and speculations. In 1721, a French adventure novel titled An Account of a Voyage from the North Pole to the South Pole via the Center of the Earth was published. I think the title is a fair summary for our purposes. A whirlpool carries a ship through the Earth from the North Pole to the South Pole, and many adventures are had. In 1741, The Journey of Niels Klim to the World Underground was published by Ludwig Holberg, whose work appears to have been heavily influenced by Halley's conceptions of spheres separated by empty spaces. In 1818, 500 copies of an amazing letter was sent out to papers, politicians, schools, and basically anybody the author thought might be influenced. And that author was John Cleves Sims. And he was not shy in stating, I declare the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric circles, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles. He went on to say inside it would be tropical and stocked with plants and animals and perhaps even a people. And all he asked was for a hundred brave companions well-equipped to venture from Siberia to the North Pole to have a look. We'll hear more about Sims in our interview, but, uh, spoiler alert, he did not make it to the Hollow Earth or the Poles. Weirdly, nobody wanted to fund his speculative investigation, but he spent the rest of his life lecturing and lobbying for such a trip. And at least one of his sons took up the cause after his father. Sims claimed to have come up with his hollow earth concepts by himself, but it did have remarkable parallels to Halley's version. In 1820, a novel came out called Simsonia, Voyage of Discovery, about a trip to the southern opening of the hollow earth. The author, a man called Adam Seaborn, is speculated to have been Sims using a pseudonym. Sims also petitioned Congress to organize an expedition, but that went nowhere. Still, it would not be the only time Congress was lobbied to fund such a trip. In 1826, James McBride published a book called Sims' Theory of Concentric Spheres, which argued in support of Sims' theories. A man named Jeremiah Reynolds joined Sims in a touring lecture series, but the two men eventually went their separate ways, splitting into two Hollow Earth factions. Reynolds was a persuasive lecturer, and his work may have contributed to the support of the Great United States Exploring Expedition of 1838 to map Antarctica's coast. In 1833, Edgar Allan Poe published Manuscript Found in a Bottle, which featured elements quite similar to Sims and Reynolds' theories, as well as travel to Antarctica. In 1864, we get Jules Verne's beloved Journey to the Center of the Earth, a popular book. It describes a scientific expedition into a hollow earth filled with strange life and adventure. 1864 is also the same year that a zoologist named Philip Sclater came up with a theory about a lost continent between India and Madagascar to explain why the animal life in both places are so similar. He concluded that there must have been a continent between them, which he called Lemuria, after the famous lemurs of Madagascar. 
We'll get back to Lemuria shortly. In 1869, a patent medicine and electrical and magnetism doctor, I'm using scare quotes around doctor, named Cyrus Teed says that he had an experience where he discovered the alchemist's philosopher's stone. And then he was visited by the goddess creator of the universe who told him he should save the human race. He rebranded himself as Koresh and founded a new religion called Koreshanity one of the beliefs of which is the earth is hollow and that we live inside the sphere of it. He would not be the last religious leader to change his name to Koresh and start a cult, nor the most famous. In 1888, Madame Helena Blavatsky published The Secret Doctrine, one of the foundational texts of theosophy, a mystical thought movement whose influence we discussed frequently. She included Lemuria as a lost home of ancient masters with all sorts of strange and mystical powers. In 1905, a book was posthumously published by an American named Frederick Oliver. The book was titled, A Dweller on Two Planets. It told the story of an Atlantean who was reborn as a Civil War veteran and is later led into a secret world by a mystic master, a subterranean world hidden under California's Mount Shasta and full of ancient, fantastic technology from Atlantis. In the introduction, Oliver explains, he didn't write the book himself, rather the content was channeled through him. That will become important later in our timeline. In 1906, William Reed argued in his book, Phantom of the Poles, that at both poles there's actually a huge hole thousands of miles wide instead of land or ice. He also thought that there are no meteor rocks, but they're just rocks from inside the earth thrown out by volcanoes from these holes. In 1909, two teams raced for the North Pole. One was led by Frederick Cook, the other by Robert Perry. It's hard to say if either team really made it precisely to the pole, or if they did, which one got there first. But neither observed a thousand-mile-wide hole, which would have been hard to miss. In 1913, Marshall Gardner questioned whether Cook or Perry really got close to the poles in his book, a journey to the Earth's interior, or have the poles really been discovered? Gardner did encourage aerial exploration of the poles to investigate these large holes that he postulated. In 1914, Edgar Rice Burroughs published At the Earth's Core, which became a series known as the Pellucidar Books. His hollow Earth has dinosaurs and adventure and ape men and strange peoples. In 1931... Lemuria, The Lost Continent of the Pacific, was published by Harvey Spencer Lewis using the anagramic pseudonym Wishar Spinley Survey. He melded elements from theosophy and the book A Dweller on Two Planets and created an even more elaborate tale of an advanced Lemurian technology under Mount Shasta. These ideas, perhaps inevitably, led to splinters of religious belief forming around them. One of the most famous was, and still is, the I Am movement, whose name recalls Ascended Masters, as well as the Old Testament Bible tale of Moses and the Burning Bush. The I Am movement was started by Guy and Edna Ballard and dealt with many of the same ideas as presented in A Dweller on Two Planets, and adds in the character of Saint Germain as the Ascended Master who guides this tour into the Lemurian subterranean wonderland under Mount Shasta. The 1934 book Unveiled Mysteries describes this tale. The similarities between the two books led to a fascinating court case where the family of the late Oliver sued the Ballards for plagiarism. 
But ultimately they lost because Oliver had claimed he didn't write the book himself. Remember, he claimed to have channeled it and to not be the author. Whoops. The Ballard's I Am movement still exists, though the movement had a good bit of drama themselves in the 1940s when the government revoked their tax-free religious status. German World War I Air Force veteran Peter Binder picked up the Koreshian ideas of the hollow earth, and in the 1940s, he worked with the Nazis to try to use the secret knowledge to their advantage. Remember that Koresh thought we were inside the spherical earth, and all the evidence to the contrary is because of optical illusions. I wasn't able to find primary sources about the experiment that Bender and his team conducted, but a couple of versions seem to agree that he traveled to the Black Sea with a team to build a device that would either look into the sky to detect enemy ships or to project something into the sky to confuse enemy radar. But whatever the actual plan was, it didn't work, and Hitler was apparently furious with the waste of resources. So Bender and much of his team ended up in a concentration camp, where Bender apparently died. In 1945, we get to the subject of our episodes, our two-part discussion, the collaborative writing of Richard Shaver, a mentally troubled artist and welder, and Raymond A. Palmer, a science fiction magazine editor and science fiction writer. Together, their stories of a hollow earth filled with evil robots and lost civilizations drove a massive social discussion. Now, if that sounds like a bunch of wacky history with no relevance to modern times, you'd be wrong. Like I said at the top, a crackpot idea may not hold water, but it can hold infinite amounts of belief. And the influence of Shaver's and Palmer's collaboration is still being felt today and will likely continue to be felt for decades. A lot of links, including two issues of Junior Skeptic around the topic of Hollow Earth by Daniel Loxton, that do a great job of, of a more detailed primer on this topic will be linked to in the show notes, plus many of the articles and books that we just discussed. So buckle up. We're going on a deep dive into the hollow earth with our speed-lunking guides, Drs. Jerry Drake and Jeb Card. This is Monster Talk. So let's, uh, I'm going to try to put a little bit of order to this, and we'll just get started by saying um, welcome uh, to Jeb Card and Jerry Drake. Thank you very much for coming back to talk to us again on Monster Talk. Absolutely. Hello. The reason I've asked you to come here tonight is to talk about uh, a topic which is a, a little bit obscure. I think most people will not have heard of these people and um, and this whole idea of the Shaver Mysteries. But I think as we start to dig in on it, you'll see that it is a topic which is absolutely critical, uh, foundational even, for a lot of what we think of as weirdology today. I'll just I'll just say straight out as I found out on Twitter this this weekend apparently more people know the the DC Comics character Ray Palmer than I was aware of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the um the, the so just I guess we should probably introduce these characters and talk about who we're talking about. So, I wanted to talk about Richard Shaver, uh Richard Sharp Shaver, who is um at least uh at least the co-author if not the author of something that was known as the Shaver Mysteries, and we'll we'll talk about what that is. But it kind of comes out of the hollow earth, um, and it kind of comes out of uh, possibly mental illness. Um, but it was brought to the public by a guy named Ray Palmer, 
who uh, was running a magazine called Amazing Stories. And Amazing Stories, you may know from the uh, Steven Spielberg-inspired TV series. I guess he produced it. Um, but it was a magazine back in, I guess, the late 30s up into – well, it's actually still around now, but it's changed. Still it, around. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But, but for the most part, really the 30s to the 50s in any real yeah. recognizable, exactly. like, important way. And it, it, it sort of parallels a lot of the, uh, the sort of uh, – I guess uh, weird tales as well, sort of the same kind of idea where it's still around, but is it really, you know, so. Well, I will get into this, but I think there actually, there's an important distinction between, you know, there's, there's several big ones, but weird, weird tales, we'll get into why that's important. And right. then you have uh, astounding and, uh, and then you get amazing stories. And those latter two are pioneers of what's now called science fiction. Uh, but they, at the time, the word was sort of scientifiction yeah. or, 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 you know, various terms. When fandom and science fiction were beginning to emerge after the era of sort of the weird tale and weird tales. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about that because that's actually integral to understanding Palmer. I think so. I think this is uh, absolutely true. Yeah, it's an interesting time. I mean, it's this post-World War One era when sort of... The world of science fiction that we knew it under um, guys like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne was morphing, kind of merging in with the Lovecraftian weird tale, and it was getting voice in in these pulp publications. And they were cheap reads. I mean, they sold for ten cents a quarter at that time period, and uh, you know, people could sit down around the you know put their feet up and read something that was more lurid than what they were getting on the on the radio. I mean, don't forget, most of this stuff is post-Hayes Code, so movies are not as um, interesting as and lurid as magazines like Amazing or right. uh, True Detective or or what people were able to buy, you know, yeah. down at the at the news rack. Yeah, you can basically see this progression of them them starting as as adventuring fantasy romances and westerns and all that, right? Then being sort of increasingly the dregs where. All kinds of lurid stuff goes. Some of it's sexually lurid. Some of it's just other lurid. And as we're going to see, this bifurcates into, one could argue, more proper science fiction and fantasy, which then becomes the world of the paperback. Right. And then these that basically go into the sweats of the 50s and early 60s. You uh, Listeners probably know them best for the the Frank Zappa uh, weasels ripped my flesh comes from one of these stories <laughs> of uh, burly men fighting Nazi dominatrixes and wild animals or both or all the above. And then these end up just basically being the origins of like mass uh, porn magazines. Yeah, like, I mean, it's funny to watch because, you know, my 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 1930s issues of these magazines are are very readable, and you could you could give them to kids. By the 50s, it's pornography. Yeah, and and writers like uh, you know more serious writers, Block and people like that, who got started in these pulps, move on to paperbacks and novels, and then later television, right. of course. And so, the thing for kids so, is that comic books also emerge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they also take a, a chunk of the sort and of comic books become less dirty, which is what's yeah. funny. Like post haste yeah. code, the comic books become less dirty and lurid. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That, that, and, there's a whole other story there with the uh, mm -hmm. uh, seduction of the innocent and right. uh, EC Comics and yeah. Stuff, so yeah, well, I think they're getting that from these roots, though. I mean, I absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
I guess to set the stage, we're at a time when when Lovecraft has died, and you know the these magazines are being dominated by by a weird kind of transitionary kind of writer that will turn into the the, the modern science fiction writer of the '50s, '60s, and '70s, and so Richard Sharp Shaver comes on the stage at a time when people are looking for content. I mean, to borrow a uh, a yeah. phrase from the internet they're they're looking for stuff to publish that will sell magazines and there's there's one more piece many of these people are v- not so much shaver but many of these people are very young yes many of the people that are not only in, so so the the thing that becomes fandom the thing that becomes comics it becomes a, the fandom that supports all of this in the 1930s a lot of it coming from People like the Lovecraft Circle, like Robert Block, for example, are teenagers. Uh, and there are some that are older, but a lot of them, not only fans are teenagers, they get jobs out of it. Right. Uh, and we're going to see that with Ray Palmer, where these these basically these kids. So the fact that this sounds a hell of a lot like the Internet and Creepypasta, there's multiple reasons. One, it's where everything that's not allowed in polite society goes. And it's run by basically man children. Well, don't forget, when Shaver shows up, it's 1943. The U.S. has been in World War II for a couple of months. So it's the it's a time for escapism. People who are too young to go to the war are reading these things versus people who are too old to go to the war yeah. are yeah. kind of publishing and trying to monetize them. So it's a, it's a really weird time in American literature where people just want to think about something that's not uh, the Second World War. Yeah. It's true, but uh, it's probably worth mentioning uh, that this whole field of science fiction comes from a guy named Hugo Gernsback, and we get yes. the Hugo Award from him. But he, to me, when I was reading about this and the birth of fandom, it, it felt almost like he was sort of a, a Fagin character because he was relying so much on these young kids to kind of pull the stories together, yeah. and uh, he was doing a lot of reprints of H.G. Uh, Wells, that sort of thing. And well, he, it sounds a lot like early comics, too, like all yeah. the exploitation of the creators of all these characters that are now billion-dollar industries. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. And, and I think uh, Gernsback wanted to professionalize it, and he wanted it to be uh, a new kind of thing. He wanted this science fiction to inspire mostly boys, I guess, uh, to be science people, to like promote science and technology. Um, but, uh, well, I, I want to name drop something that we're, we're, I think we've all pulled from here. Okay. Uh, an excellent book by, uh, Fred Natus, the man from Mars, Ray Palmer's right. amazing pulp journey, which is a biography of Palmer, but a lot of it's also about Shaver. And the reason I want to name drop that right now is I think this also might help as a sort of a statement as where we're going. Uh, he argues, and he pulls this from someone else, I'm not going to pull up the footnote, that you have three basic characters, each of which is sort of striving in a different direction. You have Hugo Gernsback, who helps create science fiction and literally wants to teach physics with it. Like, he literally wants to teach science and astronomy and have, like, the core of the story be a science thing, and let's have some characters to sort of sell it to the youth. Like, that is how he sees it, and it's the it's the bright future. You've got your um, John Campbell, uh, who uh, we'll, we will probably talk about more, who is kind of in the mold of the, the self-made man and adventure and daring do, but still science. And I want to bring in kind of literature and, and he wants to make it legitimate literature. 
And then the third strain is Palmer. And as we're going to see, he basically wants to mix this world with an already existing world of occultism, theosophy, weird ideas, weird tales, all of that. And these are the three kind of forces straining here. Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, and I think that w- although Campbell doesn't come up a lot in The Man from Mars, uh, he, his role in uh, establishing science fiction yeah. to be what mm-hmm. it is is kind of hard to uh, overstate. Uh, Isaac Asimov basically divides the world of science fiction into before and after Campbell. Like the, yeah. the coming of yeah. Campbell was like the right. seminal event. So. Though right. he has his own weird uh, aspects that we might get to. And indeed, <laughs> we might we might clear that up. Uh, and I, I I feel like while I want to talk about Shaver, I mean this is a, an episode about Shaver. It, it does matter, I think, to talk a little bit about Palmer. Uh, and I the, I don't think you can divorce them. Yeah, no, I think no. I mean, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So they're in terms of the product that is the Shaver mysteries. They're they're one person. I mean, you yeah. have a progenitor, a Shaver who was probably mentally quite mentally ill, not yeah. probably was, versus a guy who had quite an imagination. But one thing that I want to do to set the stage a little further is that if these stories had not hit the mark, we, we wouldn't remember them. They wouldn't have been successful. What we're really talking about are sort of these, what becomes a kind of hollow earth conspiracy. And in, and in 1943, when this shows up, the, the concept of the hollow earth is super relevant and valid at that time. You know, the Nazis have built a lot of their sort of social religion around the concept of Vril and the idea of these earth energies. Hitler had this idea that there could, well, Hitler and his people, that if you, that the earth might be on the inside, that us, the people, might be on the inside of the earth. And so he sent expeditions across the Atlantic to try to see if he could see the British positions by looking out across the sky and all this weird stuff. Do, do we want to do a very, 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 like, one sentence each short trajectory of the hollow earth? Because yeah. you just you just dropped Vril. So <laughs> I think uh, we should. <laughs> ideas, ideas of the hollow earth, that you can find them, or ideas of a world inside the world. You can go back at, at least to the, the late Middle Ages. You can hear this idea right. in various places. But it usually gets associated, at least from the tellings I've heard, with uh, the the sort of the Enlightenment period, and particularly Edmund Halley. Yeah, who, Halley is who, the first person but, to scientificize it, if you want to yeah, say that. To argue that there's there's weird magnetic fields and other things that can be explained by there being multiple shells of Earth inside, and there's various versions. And then a sort of local hero around here, John Clive Symes, or John Cleve Symes, uh, a hero of the uh, War of 1812 in southwest Ohio here, not the war part, but where he settled, uh, where his father settled also from the Revolutionary War. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. He was obsessed with this idea of Halley's and tried to convince, in the early, in 1818, the American government to fund an expedition through a hole in the pole to what he called in a novel, Simzonia, um, uh, to get inside and basically, hey, we're already conquering a continent. We're in the continent conquering business. Let's go do this. And he sent out Circular One to everyone in Congress, everyone he could think of, which included a statement that he wasn't crazy, which is always a good start. Mm -hmm. Um, And (laughs) while this didn't really catch on, it did actually – help inspire the first major scientific expedition of the United States federal government into the South Atlantic, which actually helped create the Smithsonian in terms of part of its collections. Correct. And there is a monument in Hamilton, Ohio, about 20 miles from here, uh, where he is buried. And on top of it is a concrete, uh, well, it was concrete, but stone, hollow earth. Um, the next big one, and uh, Jerry, I suspect you probably know this better than I do, would be uh, Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Bulwer-Lytton, he, he, he writes a book called The Coming of the Future Race, which is interesting in its parallels to the, as we'll talk about, to the, the original title of Shaver's um, uh, first manuscript, which was called A, a, a Letter to Future Man. Yeah. Uh, I'm, actually, I'm actually holding a copy of Sims's uh, circular here in my hand. If, oh, uh, if you could scan it, we could put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll do a scan of some um, of the stuff. And it it does have, I mean, that, that is one of my favorite bits of American marketing. Uh, with the, you know, if, if you'll pay, my, <laughs> I will happily go to the poll and explore. And so, check this out for yeah, you. Yeah. Not, not a problem at all. Yeah. It's uh, just like, that's how David Politis makes all his money. I'm not really looking for Bigfoot, but if you pay me, yeah. <laughs> I will go out for Bigfoot. Um, yeah, Bulwer-Lytton writes a, a work of fiction which deals with this idea of earth energies called Vril, which is, that's another whole mythology that we don't want to get into. But the That's sort of, of wielded by frog-descended yeah. humanoids <laughs> coming to the earth. By the way, you all know Bulwer-Lytton. Who He's becomes the, reptoids, okay. by the way, in mythology. They kind of do. They kind of yeah, do. Um, get into it, they become the reptoids later on. They do, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the uh, it was a dark and stormy night guy. Right? He is. He's the guy who wrote the the novel with the. But the thing to remember about about Bulwer Lytton is this is a work of fiction, and it is a work of fiction that hits home so strongly with a subset of of Vulcanite Germans, people who kind of believed in land and blood and all that great late eighteen eighties stuff, and also theosophists. I mean, yeah, Blava- Blavatsky the praises it, and they decide just to believe it. They just yeah. take it as true. And yeah, I they're think they're like, it's supposedly fiction, but it clearly isn't because he's so tuned in to everything we already right. know. So we're going to see this happen again in the 20th century where he writes a novel and you have a major part. And, you know, the theosophists are not obscure. Uh, they're a major part of the Western occult tradition. And they're like, yeah, this is all actually a thing. Yeah. yeah. And that's and that's 
kind of scary in itself, but that's also sort of what happens with the Shaver mysteries, is, is that people start to believe it, even though it was never actually meant to be true, because it fits so well into this tradition of the hollow earth, underground societies, and all that stuff. One thing I did want to bring up before we get too deep into it, you know, I think, I've got a copy of this thing laying here too, um, remember the mound that H.P. Lovecraft's right. That Zelia he, Bishop. That he gross, ghost wrote for Zelia Bishop. I think it's like 29 to 30, but a, a version of it comes out in 1940 in Weird Tales, which of course is Ray, Ray Palmer's. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I strongly suspect. So we'll yeah. get to what, what Shaver talks about. Um, I think I, th I think one other just we should mention for completeness, so there's not, I think, a huge amount of relevance. Uh, Abraham Merritt's The Moon Pool, which was a big influence right. on Lovecraft. And I think sort of helped bridge the gap between the coming race and and the mound and Shaver. But no, it is hard to read the mound and not imagine that it's an influence on Shaver. As far as I can tell, the earliest American version of these sort of underground kingdoms being real uh, comes from a guy named G. Warren Schofelt, who was arguing that he had found a. This is in 1934. It shows up in the Los Angeles Times. He argues oh, that the yeah. underground mm -hmm. city, you know, outside of L.A. Right. was inhabited by a bunch of lizard people. Well, people uh, that worshipped a lizard totem. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, a humans, totem. like Native Americans. And it gets sort of, they were, and there actually was uh, some sites there, and allegedly the, the Smithsonian conspiracy came in and they took all the bones, right. et cetera, et cetera, just the way they take the as giant. They do, so, as they do. Yeah. As they do. As they do. Before we go further into Shaver, I would I would argue that we need to so the we mentioned the mound. Um, basically, for the listeners, Zelia Bishop uh, is living out in Oklahoma. Uh, wants to have a story about a ghost indigenous woman and a headless dude ghost. Oh, he's well, yeah, and and a mound. And Lovecraft runs with this and writes this huge story about. Uh, super underground, inhuman, quasi-human civilizations. And here's the point. They are super scientists. They can basically control anything, including biology. They can phase right. through things. They can create, like, limbless zombies and all of that. And they derive their only pleasure, because their society has gotten to the end of where societies go, from sadistic entertainments. Mm. Sadistic torture and entertainment. Yeah, the city is called Kenyon. Yeah. And the mound is a real place. It's in a place called Binger, Oklahoma. I've, I've actually been there. I, I grew up near Dallas. And, of course, as soon as I got a car, I had to go see the only piece of Lovecraft country in my part of the, the country. And it's a <laughs> weird place. I, I think it's a Woodbine outlier for the geologists in the audience. There's Those those are pretty common in the area of Oklahoma and North Texas that were not fully scourged by the, by the glaciation. And it is weird looking. So it does look, a lot of people thought for a long time that it was man-made and some kind of a pyramid. So Zelia had something to work with. I think it's called Dead Woman Mound. And the story that she came up with is basically local local folklore. Right. But what Lovecraft writes, I'm sure, is not what she No, <laughs> no. I, I think literally he gave, she gave him like one sentence. It's like one sentence. If, if I remember the day book right, it's like one sentence. Yeah. He he expanded quite a bit then. I yeah, it's it's it's. I think I think it's the longest of his ghost writings, it and is. 
while it's really important, it is also really friggin' hard to read. Though I'll say this, I'd still rather read it than I remember Lemuria. Yeah. We'll get to that. <laughs> oh, so just I want to make sure we mentioned it. I we went through a litany of Hollow Earth and uh, this sort of thing. Did we mention Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pellucidar? No, we did not. Uh, did not. I think we should because uh, go ahead. In addition to merit, uh, Shaver was uh, a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs Pellucidar stories, which are yet another. Hollow Earth story, as is uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth by H.G. Wells. Which also has evil reptile people. Yeah. So with, I think, psychic powers or hypnotic. Yeah. Yeah. Animal hypnotism, if I remember correctly. It's been a while. It's like glamoring. Yeah. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, they get there with a drill, but the evil lizard people under the ground, they control, like, I think, ape men that are called Sagoths. Which is awful interesting. Yeah. <laughs> they use yeah, hypnotic yeah. powers yeah, to create to, a slave, a slave race. race Sagoths, yeah. I've yeah. never heard of Well, them. I think if you want to talk about Wells and Verne's influence on Shaver, we'll, we'll, we'll drop one more, and that's the Time Machine, which has the Morlocks and the Eloy. Oh, yeah. And that breaks down, I mean, we're going to mention it later, pretty, pretty cleanly into the concept of the Taros and the Daros, or Taro and Darrow. So, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, Somebody was reading, I, I guess the way to set the stage is to say that in 1943, when Richard Shaver writes this letter, uh, a note to future man, to Ray Palmer, the idea of a hollow earth full of alien races is not only um, in the pop culture, it's actually taken quite seriously by people. So it arrives, Shaver arrives at the right time uh, for, for what he has to offer to be accepted by the, the populace. He does, although his uh, initial writing uh, would be uh, – what would you call that? The slush pile? I, I, or the kook pile? The, yeah. crank, the crank file. I, it, it's it's, it's the, the green letter brigade. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, green wait, ink brigade. Green his ink initial brigade. submission is not a narrative. It's not a story. Well, it's, it's, okay. So let's – do we want to talk about where he gets it from? Well, let's talk about – yeah, let's mention what it is and then we can talk about where he gets it from. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, he sends in, according to uh, Palmer, uh, sends to Amazing Stories, which at this point, while Palmer, when he takes it over, starts to lean it less from – and now you will learn astronomy to – Basically, pulp daring do basically what we would know today as space opera, like Star Wars. Basically, yeah. he turns it more into Star Wars, uh, if you want to use that as, as a as a shorthand. Um, it's science fiction. It's fantasy. It's it's the movies. It's comic books. Like that's what it is. This guy Shaver's like. By the way, here's ten thousand words. I have deciphered a ancient language that's part of evil robot monsters under the ground and also all of this is real <laughs> so you know who who is shaver he's he's born in 1907 in berwick penn which is actually not far from where i'm at right now it's right outside wilkesbury in fact we drove through there oh okay that's that's uh, where that's the area i grew up just above uh, just north of the border gotcha yeah i'm sitting here in york pa tonight um so it's not too and pa's high strangeness area anyway um, and, but what's interesting about the guy is he does a lot of wacky stuff. Like he's in the John Reed Club and he kind of bums around for a long time. He later tells people that he was living as a hobo 
at a time when he was actually in, I believe, the Ypsilanti State Mental Hospital. Yeah. So yeah. He's got a serious history of mental illness, but he does manage to get married. He's clearly a voracious reader. And the, the gist of this letter that he writes to Palmer is about his deciphering, decipherment of this letter that he calls Mantong, which sounds suspiciously to me like Mantong. Yeah. Basically, what he's decided is that every letter of the alphabet, and by this he means the English alphabet, not some er, you know, proto-Indo-European alphabet, has a a symbolic meaning, mm-hmm. sort of like um, uh, a. I don't well, want to say Acadian, but but what he's actually saying is that like the letter A represents a concept, the letter. B represents a concept. Well, uh, Natus gives one. He gives the example of ape. Apes have animal power energy. Yes, animal power energy. And in the case of the Darrow, which are the evil robots, that's detrimental energy robot. Yeah. And the good guys are integrated robots because in his language, the word integration is the best thing you can be. And for some reason, to me, this sounds completely idiotic, but for some reason, this is what got Ray Palmer going, was this linguistic concept that he thought was definite proof that the legend of Atlantis was, was true. I'm, I'm not so surprised by that. So the, the thing this immediately reminds me of is the work of uh, Brassier de Bourbourg. Brassier yeah, de Bourbourg. Was, yeah. Yeah. Is an important is an important Mayanist, uh, an important student of Maya anthropology history. Uh, he is uh, works in archives. He writes fiction. In the middle of the nineteenth century, he finds parts of an actual Maya book, a Maya codex. Uh, he also finds more. He finds a uh, elements of a. Um, uh, the Popol Vuh, which is this incredibly important piece of literature, although others had also found it. But the thing that he's most known for, and that is the most important, is that he finds in the middle of the, t- the 19th century a copy of Relacion de las Cosas de Yucatan. Uh, basically, colonial Spanish culture was incredibly litigious. It was assumed that people in office would be corrupt. So when you left office, you had to provide a defense of yourself. And the Archbishop of Yucatan, Diego de Landa, had done this in the late 1600s. And so what did he do? He described the place he worked, Yucatan, and the Maya people. This is where we get a lot of information, early information about Maya calendrics and numerals. But the most important page is he gets this Maya uh, noble to help him translate Maya writing, Maya hieroglyphs. Uh, and he asks the guy, please write a sentence, please, because he's like, write a sentence in, in, in your <laughs> language. And he writes, Ma'ingati, I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, yeah. And uh, he then writes letras. And it's A and B and C and D. Well, actually, it's A and B and C and D and A, etc. in Spanish. And that's important. Landa uh, writes this, Delanda writes this down. It is basically lost. Brasser de Borborg finds it in the middle of the 19th century. And unfortunately, in addition to being a good archivist, Brasser de Borborg was obsessed with Atlantis conspiracy theories and other ideas of weird shitology. So he finds this thing and he doesn't interpret it the way it eventually is interpreted. We eventually realize uh, the work of Yuri Konorizov in the 1950s that uh, when Diego de Landa says, Deme Ache, give me the letter for H. 
the guy writes ah and che. He writes out two syllables. And Kodorazov eventually figures it out, and that way goes the Maya decipherment, and that's a whole other story. Delanda, or excuse me, not Delanda, Brasso de Borborg takes this at face value. Oh, a initially backwards. Then he starts making translations, but he they're completely insane. Right. But on top of that, he believes that each one of these letters has a super secret meaning in symbolism that ties it back to the destruction of Atlantis. Because of course it does. Uh, and on top of that, he thinks he finds the name of Atlantis, Moo. Right. He, he, he basically cre uh, establishes the word Mu being associated with lost sunken continents. He inspires – his stuff is found in the work of uh, Ignatius Donnelly who basically creates the modern concept of Atlantis with Atlantis, the Antediluvian world. Uh, it inspires the Leplongeons in Yucatan and many others. While uh, Jeb was talking, I brought up that chapter and he's dead, right? Like there's a whole chapter here where Donnelly lays out how the Mayan alphabet is basically a history of it, it is, a, is a subtext history of Atlantis. I'll scan you some of those pages because it is sweet. Well, and we don't want to go too far down this yeah, road. I, We've actually talked about it before, <laughs> but not, not, not so much that, but um, that word moo continues to get associated with ideas of sunken continents, um, including symbolic writing in the 1920s right. found on the moo stones dug up by William Niven, I happen to have four of them, um, in the lab, uh, and interpreted by Colonel, I'm doing a lot of air quoting, you can't see, uh, <laughs> James Churchward. All of this is part of the sort of theosophy and theosophy-adjacent occult world, which also produces the Ohaspi Bible, which Ray Palmer was a huge promoter of. Right. So I guess the question is, who's, who's the person who, out of the maybe hundreds of thousands, if not millions of words that got written about the Shaver mysteries. Who's the person that knew all that stuff? Was it Shaver or was it Palmer or was it some of each? I think it's Shaver, some of each, but a lot of it's Palmer, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think Palmer, well, I think the original uh, manuscript was, what, 10,000 words and yeah. Palmer it bumped it up to close 30, to 30, yeah, 30,000. So, um, but while we're talking about linguistic scholars, this, this whole thing about uh, extending the meaning by looking at each letter and applying symbolism to that. And another famous uh, sort of linguistic scholar who has done that uh, very successfully uh, is Gary Busey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm pretty proud about knowing not knowing what the fuck you're talking about. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I know there's a motorcycle accident at some point. Yeah, I'm Gary. Gary before before the motorcycle accident was a, a very intimidating actor. Uh, you know, he played a lot of heavies. Uh, and uh, after the accident, uh, he had, I, I mean, apparently, uh, uh, some, some brain damage. Um, mm -hmm. Wear your helmets, people, is, the, I think, the message here. Wear your helmets. Um, but, yeah, he, he constantly does this thing where he will take a word and then he will take each letter of the word. Oh, and, and it, it, I had successfully forgotten that. Thank yeah, you, Blake. yeah, yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. I have a hobby that's really wonderful because it helps me understand the meaning of one word with a sentence that reflects the word's meaning and definition. These are called Buseisms. The word now, N-O-W, no other way. The word team, 
T-E-A-M. Together, everyone achieves more. Well, one of the things we should mention then is where Shaver does get it from. So he's he's working a welding job one day, mm-hmm. and this is a little vague, and we don't quite know what happens. But, but before that, before that, there's the whole thing with the demon. Oh, go ahead. I I'm not clear on that. So you so before demon. that, his his brother dies, and he becomes obsessed with the idea that a demon is stalking him and his family. And I believe the demon's name is Max. I don't think it's the brother's name. I think it's the demon's name. I could be wrong about that. Like, so that's already happened before about what you're about to say. So he's already got that going on. Kind of a paranoia, yes. And uh, his welding machine malfunctions, and he believes that it gives him the ability to hear uh, the voices from his coworkers. Yeah, he can hear what they're thinking. Exactly. And then later on, this power develops into his ability when he's laying in bed at night to hear the voices of these these Daros first and then these Taros later. Yeah. And they essentially start to tell him this story about um, the Mantong language. And if you and they are shooting influencing rays into his brain, yeah. which is not an uncommon symptom of unchecked uh, schizophrenia, what they used no. to call paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. It's a. It's this is something that actually is in my field a little bit. So I I, I don't feel bad about being a doctor of of cognitive uh, uh, behavioral studies. Um, the influencing machine is a concept where people believe that um, they are being told something or given information from outside their body, uh, and it was first documented in the late uh, 1700s. There, but there have been a couple of famous people uh, since then who have actually had the influencing machine talking to them in their lives. Uh, famously, uh, who was the the killer up in New York City that his dog told Son him? Son of Sam. Berkowitz. Yeah, yeah, Son Berkowitz. of Sam, yeah. yeah. David Berkowitz. So that's a classic um, example of the influence machine. Uh, the, influence the, the phrase you're using, on the origin of the influencing machine in schizophrenia, written by Victor Tosk in 1919. And that that... You know, I mean, it's still a concept that we use in in cognitive studies. The idea of the influence machine is a way of externalizing the internal voice and concretizing it, if if you want to use that phrase. The question that we ask ourselves is, you know, was, you know, obviously if somebody were walking down the street today and said their their welding gun was telling them, you know, about these ancient races of people, we wouldn't uh, think twice about wanting to have them uh, medicated. But in the old days, you have to wonder – uh, is Padre Pio, was he somebody that was influenced by that, St. Francis? I always kind of wonder how much of our mythology is uh, simply the result of really compelling uh, voices in people's head. And I think Shaver is a great example of how uh, people can get carried away. I mean, the guy, in a way, was actually a victim uh, more than a than a perpetrator of any kind of oh, mythological hoax. I would absolutely agree with that. I I... I don't know if you can say that Shaver was exploited, especially since once he starts working with Palmer, he seems to at least get better in terms of his everyday life. Although we'll talk about the rock books thing. Um, But yeah, no, he's not. I don't know if exploit's the right word because maybe there's actually some kind of art therapy or something going on here. Palmer, on the other hand, I'm sure we will talk about where this all goes. Yeah, he. Yeah, he's not a victim of anything. Well, he's a victim of a of a truck. But that's a different discussion. So the the book they eventually come up with, but it's novella length. It's over thirty thousand words. I mean, it's a chunky story. 
I, I reread it the other day and it about it about gave me a headache because I was trying to read it in the original format, which was not real smart. Um, it's it's called I Remember Lemuria. And, yeah. you know, Lemuria is the fictional uh, continent that was supposed to hypothesize to exist between Madagascar and yeah. India. Initially and starts as a scientific hypothesis, but very yes. quickly gets picked up by theosophists, specifically Blavatsky in the 1860s. And this is another uh, piece of, of, of concretization of something that's totally uh, fictional or hypothetical. It has the name Lemuria because the guy who postulated the original idea didn't understand why the creatures of Madagascar were more similar to the creatures that were found living or in the fossil record in India. Yeah. It's and literally Lemuria. Lemuria, and it comes yeah. from lemurs. And the theosophists actually, and of course Palmer himself, Decide that that was the actual name of the place. <laughs> so why not? Know, yeah, I mean, why not? It was a good name. You could have called it Mu. You could have called yeah. it Atlantis, or or I believe the Tamil have in their mythology a uh, a sunken continent that that the Theosophists eventually, in the modern era, sort of connected Lemuria with. But nope, they went straight with the uh, the, the basic name. And it's kind of hard to separate Mu and Lemuria. Like, Mu is clearly supposed to, church words Mu feels a lot like yeah. Lovatsky's Lemuria. Yeah. And most people, I think, actually combine the two. I'm not sure it matters except in very specific historical contexts. Right. But, you know, if you're trying to explain Easter Island or uh, stoneworks in Polynesia and stuff Cthulhu. like that. Cthulhu, it's a very convenient uh, uh, rhetorical device to have stuck out there in the Pacific. And, and it, I'm drinking a Moscow Mew right now, so uh, or that's uh, that's awesome. So a Moscow Mew. Well, I'm drinking. Well, no, bourbon. no a Moscow Moo. <laughs> Moo. Okay, great. Oh god. <laughs> it's got the. I've got my uh, Crystal Skull vodka uh, and fresh limes. Yeah, it's good. Well, I, as always, I'm concerned about the malaria, so I'm having some quinine. As quinine. one does, yeah. <laughs> so, so I have read the biography of Ray Palmer, and I've read some of the biography of Richard Shaver. But what I failed to read, or I found it very difficult to read, was the actual I Remember Lemuria. Uh, I just had a hard time, but it's such an influential thing. Uh, Jerry, were you able to get into it? I've read it a couple of times now. I've, you I read it. Magnificent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, this is my first time through it specifically for this podcast. And I, I'm not sure I'm ever going to forgive you, Blake. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I, I will. Cause they, now I have to solidarity. I'm not, I'm not really sure you do actually. Um, <laughs> what's I, it like? What's it like? Well, okay. Let I, there's a fawn girl. Um, it starts right there. Uh, I don't know. It 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 was nearly incomprehensible. Imagine, uh, I don't know, the John Carter of Mars, written by 4chan, <laughs> and with, a, with, with more than a touch of Tumblr with with the, <laughs> yeah. the furry element. Yeah. I mean, apparently a lot of writers worked on it, and I don't get that sense at all. It feels like somebody wrote it out in a in a day yeah you know progressively getting a little bit drunker yeah just, you know, just as they go on just constant trash jargon like stim rays and these and that and like 70 foot tall snake women 
uh, who, you know, the, the elders get bigger and bigger and constant, the constant allure of giant women. Uh, and yeah, it, the internet has existed for far longer than you realize. It just happened to be on paper. (laughs) So it's, it's got, I mean, the first I'm looking at it here, the first paragraph says, this will give you a flavor. I was working in the studio of Artan Grow when I heard a great laugh behind me. If ever there was a derision in a laugh, there was a derision in this one. I flung down my gaudy brushes and my palette and turned about in rage to find the master himself, his red cave, red cave of a mouth, wide open in his black beard. I cooled my temper with an effort, for great indeed is Artan Grow, master artist of sub Atline. The whole damn thing goes on like that one big run on paragraph. It's Lord Dunsany to the 50th degree. Oh. It's funky phrases, you know, weird hoogity-boogity kind of made-up place names. It's just very difficult to read. Well, I would go even farther than that. I would absolutely agree that what you just read with the run-on sentences is is quite um, uh, representative. But there's there's <laughs> two there's there's several other elements. So one, there's footnotes. Oh yeah, there's footnotes. There's footnotes. To try to make this be more real. Um, so, for example, um, at one point, uh, we're looking at uh, where is this footnote? Oh, yes. Uh, soon I was striding between the pillaring fangs of the great beast's mouth that was the door of the hall of symbols where the school's schoolways converged. About was the bustle attendant to any roll at way station. Uh, bearers rushing, traveling, gazing about, lost in wonder at the vaulting glitter of sculptured pillars and painted walls done by men of a caliber whose work Roe, like myself, cannot grasp entirely. Roe having a footnote. Here again, we are. We had to appeal to Mr. Shaver for amplification. Uh, amplification. We certainly got it, and along with uh, some amazing thoughts. Roe, he says, is a thing of simple, repetitive life pattern, easy to understand and control. To row you is to make you do things against your will. A large generator of thought impulse can be set up to row a whole group of people. Row the boat, with W, the other row doesn't have, uh, is modern in the meaning has become physical force and not mental force. Row the people was an ancient method of government. Romantic was the name of such a government row man tick science of man life patterning by control and it continues it's like that for the whole thing except for when he's admiring the tail of his fawn girlfriend wow and by fawn i mean half deer yeah 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 i just came back from an anime uh, convention so yeah <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole book is like that and gets worse as it goes because once it mentions Rose and Rays and it's like now I'm going to have 40 of them. Wow. Like I said, The Mound is considered one of Lovecraft's worst stories and it is a thousand times more readable than this. My yeah. assumption is the from the footnotes is basically that's the meat and potatoes of Shaver. That actually came from Shaver, yeah. Leather. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the vast majority of the ancient society stuff came from Palmer, who again was deep. So we mentioned the Ohaspi Bible. Now that's a thing I have not read. I have sampled it. It is fifteen hundred pages, but it's basically a theosophy adjacent, early kind of ancient aliens book, like one hundred and thirty years ago. Uh, and he, Shay, uh, Palmer eventually became such an, uh, an adherent and advocate of it. He republished it and, and, and was putting it out there. 
I get the feeling that almost all of the Lemuria stuff is is coming from is coming from Palmer. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it you know Palmer is obviously also well read in the classics of sci-fi, and his first pro sale was uh, to Gernsback, and it was a story called The Timery of Jandra. And in that, there's an ancient city in a lost jungle, uh, yeah. and the people in there are trying to drill uh, to the center of what? A hollow earth, which is full yeah. of riches. So yeah. he had already gotten that hollow earth sort of mentality. But then there's horrible disaster, which is also every turn in I Remember Lemuria. So we got the hollow earth, but we also have this whole thing about the Darrow and the Tarot. Can you explain that? That's uh, the because because Shaver believed people were influencing him. These these it so, was it wasn't just that there's a hollow earth. It was that the people. Oh yeah, the hollow earth is like literally the least part of this. Yeah yeah. So let's let's call them Atlanteans. They're the people that lived on Atlan, and uh, apparently in the far distant past uh, we we can call can we Skype in Robert Shock to confirm or deny this but <laughs> apparently in the far distant past the sun had a solid uh, uh, like a like an M&M shell around it and as it began to fail the the people that lived on this continent could not survive so there was a plan to vacate the earth, go elsewhere, and survive, but a, a large group, a contingent of the society didn't want to do it. So they were sort of sabotaged in their attempt, and yada, 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 giant sexy women and daring do later, um, a bunch of folks decide to stay behind, and Morlock style, they sort of devolved into these pot-bellied, you know, uh, disease. They've got all kind of heart disease and weird stuff wrong with them. Uh, uh, bad guys who are very similar to the uh, residents of Kenyon in Lovecraft's The Map. They're 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 sadistic. Exactly. They're totally decadent, totally sadistic. Cannibals. Yeah. I will say the original Morlocks, I kind of like them. I'm not a big fan of the, uh, the Eloy, but continue. Yeah, the society has has declined, and these these detrimental energy robots, the Daros, are still around, and they're sort of the influencing machine that is that is pestering a poor Shaver. And, and they're harmed by the sun's rays because the sun's Correct. rays are toxic to everything. And at one point, Shaver and Palmer, once they've become partners and they actually end up living near each other. Um, try to improve their diets by only, according to Shaver's teachings, eating very young things, yeah, like young plants and young animals, because they haven't been exposed to the sun long. Yep. Gross. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, I'm not a vegetarian, I'm a vegetarian. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm a vegetarian, but still gross. Mm. Um, mm. I like I like my cheese to be old, though not sun exposed. Um uh, so the Taros, on the other hand, are the are the integrated robots, and they are analogous, kind of, to, kind of the angels. Yeah, they're like angels, and probably linked to angelic beings, and they're the ones trying to help the human race uh, resist the uh, the the negative influence of the Darrow. And and the the story is really a lot about that first battle. Um, the first story I remember, Lemuria, is all about that. Then the return to Sanathus is the second one, and that's sort of what happened back on on Mu later on down the road related to this conflict. And 
I get, I don't. One thing that I've I've not been able to understand is what the Darrow's motivation is. Like, are, are, they're not really trying to conquer the Earth. I think I, that they're just broken. I think that yeah. they're just diseased, and so they just do evil things because their minds are are warped. That seems to be the case. I mean, I, I don't know if they're a metaphor for you know Nazis and Japanese imperialists at the time, or I'm always trying to find. Uh, uh, you know what? I I by the time it gets to Palmer, I think they may be a meta- metaphor for something else because no yeah, conspiracy yeah. theorist, that, you know where I'm going with that. Yeah, here we go. If no Jews, no news, right? I mean, <laughs> there, no. There, Palmer later gets into some real trouble with with anti-Semitism. Yeah, and this is this would not be the only example oh, of right. various secular. Conspiracy theories basically replicating the medieval blood libel, uh, which then goes through witch trials and goes through all sorts of stuff and has never gone away, uh, which we see in stuff like Pizzagate and QAnon today. Um, And there's more than a hint of that. Uh, And frankly, I would argue some of the artwork used to illustrate the the Deros looks a lot like stereotypes, anti-Semitic stereotypes of the 20th century. So if you ever if you ever take a look at that all shaver mystery uh edition that's got the darrows on it it is a, a virtual you know who's who gallery of of, of anti-semitic yeah i mean i i don't show that imagery in class when i talk about this and i talk about the origins of flying saucers in case you're wondering where we're going uh and, and all of that i don't show that stuff because i'm like yeah no it's it's yeah no i, I think that's kind of where this is going We probably need to take a break. Uh, When we come back, let's talk about how this stuff does lead into the world where Ray Palmer becomes the father of flying saucers. It's really interesting. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard a discussion with Jerry Drake and Jeb Card about the strange history of theories around the hollow earth and the collaboration between Richard Shaver and Raymond Palmer that became known as the Shaver Mysteries. Tune in to the next episode for the conclusion in which we learn how Ray Palmer becomes known as the father of UFOs and what happens to Shaver, Palmer, and the narrative of the Darrows and the Taros. Monster Talks, an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the center of the earth. <laughs> 